This morning, I am uh, going to preach one of the passages that are traditionally assigned to Palm Sunday. It's one of the lectionary passages for today. And it, in some ways, is a, is a readying text for what happens this week. Uh, I read on one of our leaders' Facebook walls wonderful, wonderful language that just captured and snatched what this day is about. She said uh, about Easter that she's looking forward to the most important day of her life. And in many ways, I think we can, we can, we can borrow that language because while we live in very ordinary time, the church owns time, claims time in a different way and on a different calendar. And Palm Sunday is that, that day, that Sunday that launches us in to what's called Holy Week, as Nate said. And Holy Week is where we turn ourselves, Lent as well, where we turn ourselves to Christ and to his sacrificial uh, example, to, to uh, him as he travels to Calvary. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 19 and read from verses 29 and 40, uh, 29 to uh, 46. Is that too close? Uh, this, this mic discriminates against people with facial hair. Uh, so uh, I'll put it that way. Uh, no, it's my mic. It's the black one. So it's the one I use. So it's not a you know, racial thing. But, but uh, uh, I had it too close. So I think that's working. That, all right. Luke 19, uh, verses 29 uh, to 46. I'm not going to have you read yet, but uh, I, uh, I do want you to ready yourself to talk back to me. You probably won't, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Luke 19, verses 29 and 46. This, I think, is the English uh, standard version. Talking about Jesus, Luke says, When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is God's word for us this morning. As I was preparing for uh, this morning, I thought of I thought about two uh, events. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I thought about two events in preparation for today's message. Uh, The first event I thought about was uh, the St. Patty's Day Parade. Uh, A week or so ago, uh, we were were over uh, Carlton's and a group of uh, a group of men together, and John brought up uh, Saint. This was right after Saint Patrick's Day, and John brought it up. and uh, And as I was preparing uh, for today, I thought about Saint Patrick's Day, and I thought about the parade. And on the south side, uh, there's a, a community, the neighborhood called Beverly Neighborhood. And I grew up n- knowing only Saint Patrick's Day, really in relation to Beverly. I lived near there uh, and in Beverly, and uh, and I and I learned about this parade that was a south side. Parade. And then there's also a wider parade as well. And I grew up uh, thinking of St. Patty's Day as one of those parades, one of those events uh, that uh, in order to attend, in order to participate, you know, you had to be Irish. And, uh, and if you weren't Irish, you had to at least be able to pass for Irish. And, uh, and so I grew up not really feeling like it was one of those events that I could attend. Now, that was a childhood perception, and to some extent, I still think that way. Uh, and I, you know, I'm probably wrong, and I'm always happy when I see the news covering St. Patty's Day, and I see somebody who looks a little bit like me, and I say, oh, you know. But in general, I think, I think of that, that holiday where we celebrate that Catholic saint, I think of it as one of those parades, one of those events uh, that, that that, that I'm not really invited to or that I wouldn't really feel comfortable in. But I, but I thought about that parade uh, this week, and I, I thought about a second parade as well. I thought about the Bud Billiken Day Parade. Now, uh, the Bud Billiken Day Parade, for those of you who uh, haven't been in the city or don't know this parade, is a parade that was originally started by the founder of the Chicago Defender. And uh, that parade was started right before the school year, the traditional Chicago public school year, as a marker to ready primarily black children in the city uh, and to inspire them 
and to motivate them and to get them ready uh, for the school year. And so I grew up and in the soldiers and we sang at the parade. We were on floats in the parade and, and it was the opposite for me. It was one of those parades where I knew I was supposed to be at. And when I saw people who didn't quite look like me, we looked at them and said, oh, you're a guest. You're welcome. You know, you're at a, our parade, if you will. And so, so I thought about these two parades this week, these, these two events in our city's life, one that I don't feel very comfortable in and one that I sort of do feel comfortable in. And I thought about this passage today as a kind of Palm Sunday parade. Not quite like St. Patty's Day, uh, not quite like but Billiken Day, but, but for the Christian, one of those events that, that we would attend, that, that we would invite other people to attend. And this morning, if I were to ask you, uh, and I am, and so get in the moment ready to, to answer this question, if I were to ask you to look back where you came from and to think about events that you would say, well, you know, if you're from the city of Chicago, you have to know about this event. Or if you're from this neighborhood, you have to know about this, uh, this gathering. If you're from this town, you have to know about this. Where would your mind go? So think for a minute. I'm going to invite you one at a time. And we won't know what you're talking about, but we will act like we do. So uh, where would you send people if they were to come uh, uh, to where you're from? If you had an event, maybe a parade, where would you invite people? people uh, to go to, maybe in your home city, your hometown. This is, huh? Tulip time. Okay, we absolutely don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Yes, Byron. Mardi Gras. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, you are from New Orleans. Everybody knows Mardi Gras. Yes. Yes. Horse fest? Corn fest. I made another one. Okay, corn fest. Okay, all right, raise your hand so I can see you. Barman? Fireman. You know, sometimes I can't hear. That's fireman's grade? Parade. Okay. All right. Let me just clarify. When I ask you to speak, you have to use your preaching voice, right? So again, the preaching voice, let me just tell you, is it's not a yell. It's right prior to a yell. It's not a scream. It's not quite the parent voice, but it's somewhere in between the voice you use to command your child and the voice you use to call for help, right? So somewhere in between. That's the, the, the preaching voice. Yes, Bridget. They were laughing. Say it again. Gold rush days. Okay, who else? African Street Festival. Anybody in the back? They didn't take you anywhere when you were growing up? (laughs) Carnival. Yes. Fiesta. Fiesta. One or two more. Where would you where would you tell people to go to? That sounded like glossolalia, but I heard Chinese New Year. Now somebody else was saying, so Chinese New Year, somebody else was over there saying. Juneteenth. One more. Where else? Open Art, Oakland Art and Soul Festival, and Anna. German Fest. Now, now, now think about these events and wherever your mind might be as you think about your upbringing and where you uh, would suggest people to go to, whether Fireman's Parade or uh, the Oakland uh, Arts and soul fest. And come as close as you can to this passage where Jesus is coming with his disciples to a fest. 
Jesus is traveling with his disciples. Not quite tulip time. But he's coming and celebrating with his disciples and his followers at one of the three uh, pilgrimage festivals for Jews of his day. There are uh, three festivals, and the one that Jesus is going to is the Passover. There's also the Feast of Weeks. There's the Feast of Tabernacles. And these fests, these festivals were holidays where uh, the, the people of God, the Jewish people, would express their gratitude to God. Uh, they were filled with joy. They were filled with eating and, and, and dancing and singing and sacrificing. And they, they would remember the God. who would grant blessing to the poor, to the oppressed, to the people of God. And Luke is writing about Jesus and his followers as they travel to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is the day where uh, the Jews would celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Now, Passover and these other pilgrimage festivals were significant for two reasons. The first reason it was significant is it was culturally significant. For Israel, cultural significance uh, meant historical and religious importance. And so for something to be culturally significant in the time of Christ, it was historical and it was religious. There was no split between the two. Israel were a cult- was a cultural people because their culture was created by a God who called them special and chosen. So, so they were a religious people just because God made them. They were God's people, and they were a historical people because they lived through these moments where God delivered them. So it was culturally important. And the second thing is these events were politically significant. Now, uh, the Passover particularly was a, was a re-embodiment of what God had done in Israel. It wasn't just remembering what God had done and sort of sending your mind back to God delivering the people from Egyptian bondage. It was their uh, relived reminder uh, uh, that God, who, who, who de- that God delivered them from the sitting political power, from the current Pharaoh. It was Israel's way of saying there is another king, there is another ruler, there is another leader. It was impossible for them to to go to Passover and take away the political significance and the cultural meaning of these events. So Jesus is traveling uh, along Mount Sinai with his disciples. They're going into the city of David. And he is sitting upon a colt, a mule. He's atop the garments of his disciples, and he rests on this lump of clothing as they walk and stumble down this road. And Luke says that there are people all around Jesus lining the way. And and the Bible gives us these powerful, if not uh, strange, images of Jesus. He, He is a king, but he doesn't look like a king. He's, he, he's not riding in town on a stallion or a chariot. He's on a mule. 
He is a king, but, but he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't cloak himself in the royal colors of, of, of deep red or dark purple or dazzling white. He's not wearing refined silk, but probably some grainy, cheap material that's accessible to a carpenter who's been out of work for a long time. He is a king, but he doesn't quite look like a king. He's on this mule. He's walking and and trotting down this road. And he hears people shouting. They are shouting praises and they are shouting prayers. I want you to imagine this crowd. They, They are saying, as we sang a moment ago, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, everybody in the crowd isn't singing. There there are some people in the crowd singing, but there are other people in the crowd um, who are uh, uh, Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who eventually say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They are also in the crowd. The disciples are there. The the, uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders are there, but a third group is there, and it includes a, a rather indifferent group. It's a group of people who have come from all over uh, the world to celebrate this Passover. They're not local people. They're visitors to town. They don't know Jesus. So if they're along this road, they're trying to get to where things are happening. They're trying to participate in this holy series of affairs, and so they don't really know this man who people are yelling at and calling out and saying things that are really, really determined for God, like Hosanna. The religious leaders are there, the the disciples are there, and the uh, travelers are there. And Jesus is riding in on this colt. And I want to point to two things, just two things in this passage, and they're they're almost the same thing. Uh, two things in this passage that are happening. The first thing is that the people are reacting. Say the word reacting. Say it again. Say reacting. The people are reacting or responding to Jesus. Now, there are three types of people at least, and they're all reacting. Look at uh, verses 37, 38, and 39. As he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. There is roaring and shouting. There are praises and prayers. There uh, is um, uh, a question and criticism in these verses here. And, and, and the people are Uh, shouting their prayers and their hopes and all of the things that they are saying, all of the reactions that they have are lodging down into the spirit of the one who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is riding in uh, to the tune of K 
countless sorrows from his suffering people. They are pronouncing their need for God. They are saying, Hosanna, which means save us. They are saying, Hosanna, which means help us. They are singing and shouting, and they see God in Christ coming, and God in Christ is listening. The people are reacting. They are responding. And this is the essential role, I think, of the church. Pastor Peter last week uh, finished the sermon series about the church. He talked about the church as a spiritual house. He talked about the church uh, as the body of Christ. He talked about the church as a city on the hill. He talked about these various uh, images of the church, the people of God. Uh, We talked about these things, learned about what the church is, learned about what the church does. And if I could snatch and summarize it uh, for today, I would say that what the church does is the church gathered or scattered points people to God. The church showcases the Lord so that the people who see God can respond. What we do is we say in our way, in other words, this is God. This is God. This is God. And everybody who sees responds. Everybody who turns and sees reacts. Now, now in this passage, there is a crowd of people. Some of them are worshiping. Some of the people in this crowd, uh, though, will scream for the blood of Jesus to be shed days later. They, they will not see the importance of this man. They will, they will ask him to be treated like the worst offender. There are also indifferent people in this crowd. As I said, they're travelers. They want to get to where the action is. And the Lord sees them all. He sees the people who are praising and the people who are criticizing. And he travels down the road to his death. He sees all the people he's about to give his life for, not just the people who love him, but the people who oppose and hate him, the people who look at him and say that he is meaningless. And he walks the road to die for them all. They're exalting the Lord, some of them, because he is all they have. Some of them are resisting the Lord because they can't, they can't get the fact that he is the kingdom that he preaches about. Some of them on this road uh, react as if he doesn't matter at all. But none of them see Jesus and refrain from an opinion. Everyone who sees him reacts. I think the fact that Jesus walks this road with these types of people, these reactionary people, the people who love him and hate him, the people who adore him and the people who couldn't care less about him. I think the fact that Jesus keeps walking is a musical note of the gospel in this text. 
Because Jesus does not walk to that hill far away where the old rugged cross stands just for the people who like him. He walks for the people who hate him too. And, and, and I wonder if this passage and these people's reaction can, can, can follow us today. I wonder if, if we as God's church can come and as we pray and as we worship, I wonder if we can come, whether we love or whether we hate, whether we love and adore or whether we're indifferent to God, whether we're suffering and struggling or whether we're fighting mad because of something that Jesus hasn't done or some box we've created that he hasn't fit in I wonder if we can at least turn long enough to see him walking he is watching and walking the angry people and the devoted people the people cherishing him And the people rejecting him. Jesus parades to his death with all our shouts and all our silences. And and he goes up and down the side of Mount Olivet. Jesus uh, keeps walking. The people are reacting. That's one. The The second sort of part of this text is that Jesus reacts. Jesus uh, reacts. Look again uh, at uh, the scripture, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When I read the Bible um, and when I read about Jesus in particular, I often uh, depersonalize Jesus. Um, I, I look at Jesus and I want him to relate to me, but I don't want him to relate too closely. I, I, I want him, uh, like, like anyone, to understand me, but I don't really want him to be truly incarnational because for me uh, it's just this massive incredible miracle that Jesus could be completely God and completely human it's so 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 my temptation when I come to Jesus is always to say he's completely God he 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 gets it done but he doesn't feel anything about So I study and I investigate and I turn over words in Scripture in, in a really unfeeling way. 
When I, when I do this, Jesus doesn't, doesn't really feel. He accomplishes. He doesn't feel anything about dying. He just dies. He, he doesn't really have an opinion uh, as much as he has action. So, so in my first reading, in my first coming to a text about Jesus, I always have to watch out for my temptation to say, he's so God and he feels nothing. And so this text troubles me and my issues, this text, because this text says that when Jesus draws near to the city with this crowd of people around him, he weeps. And no matter how, you know, staid or conservative or uh, detached or calm or non-anxious you are, uh, when you see somebody weeping, you can't really avoid the fact that they're having feelings. And so I look at this and I say, thank you, Luke, very much for making this very clear. Jesus hears the people. He sees the city coming and going as they descend along the side of Mount Olive. and, And what does he do? He cries. He's on his way to his death, and he expresses emotion. He expresses an aching. I can't exactly tell you what Jesus saw when he looked at the city, when he looked to his left and to his right, when he traveled down uh, all of these cloaks strewn in his way. I can't tell you exactly what he saw other than obviously seeing the city and seeing the people, but I think he saw the condition of the city. I think he saw the future of his cherished Jewish friends. I think he saw his crucifixion coming days later, and he knew that not many of them would appropriate his all and his everything and his sacrifice. I think that Jesus weeps. I think that his weeping is a sign of mercy. I think his weeping is a merciful expression. Lamentations 3 says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And I think that when Jesus sees the city, when he sees these people, when he sees whatever he sees, I think his tears are a reminder of mercies that never come to an end, even while he's on his way to death. I wonder if you can see Jesus this morning who on Palm Sunday looks at your life and our city and weeps. I wonder if you can turn uh, to a Jesus who sees and who weeps. I can't be sure, but I imagine there are things that Jesus today would weep over. If, if, if he saw uh, uh, the children in our streets being killed, children who were at the wrong end of somebody's foolish hard-heartedness, whether Trayvon Martin or Aaliyah Shell or the, the, the 13 other people shot last Thursday night in Chicago, 
I think Jesus would weep. I think that Jesus, when looking at some of your prayer requests, some of the, the words that you scribble, that some of y'all can't write well, but we read those, those prayer requests week after week. And I think if Jesus saw the things that you were praying over, uh, 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 diagnosed and undiagnosed sicknesses, I think that Jesus would weep. I imagine Jesus when seeing the poor becoming poorer, when Jesus seeing the homeless never finding shelter, uh, the felon never being given another chance or another job, that Jesus would weep. What do you imagine him weeping over? What do you think about and, and imagine God getting, getting so merciful that he weeps? Can you even conceive of it? Is your heart so far away from feeling maybe like mine that God could even relate? Is your heart so far away that you can't even imagine a weeping Jesus? He says, I wish you knew what would make peace. This is humbling, Jesus' words, because, because he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to Jewish people who come to celebrate the pilgrimage festivals that re-embody God's deliverance. He's, he's talking to religious leaders, even if they don't agree with him on all of the fine theological points. He's talking to people who should get it. He's not talking to the masses, to the wider public, to the, to the, to the, to the rest of the world. He's talking to people who gather themselves around the Torah, who turn themselves to the word of God, who turn themselves to prayer. He's talking to people who have followed and walked with him and, and, and walked this road with him. And he says, I wish you knew what would make peace. I don't know about you, but it makes me tentative. It makes me a little bit uncertain. It makes me less tight about how I see things. It makes me more prayerful because, because Jesus here is saying, you think you get it. I wish you knew. Can you hear God this morning speaking to you and saying to you, I wish you knew what you were talking about. That thing that you say when you're most right. And that attitude you have when you say it. That, that, and you wouldn't call it judgmentalism. You wouldn't, but that's fundamentally what it is. Jesus, Jesus, I wish you knew what made for peace. He comes down this mountainside 
on this smelly animal, this humble animal, this this uh, faithful animal that is only highlighted in relation to more powerful animals, this mule, this colt. He's on this mule, this colt, and he sees his city, and he doesn't take over. He doesn't assert his kingship. He doesn't flex his divine power. He stays on the animal, clumping on the road. What a strange God. What a perplexing man. I mean, I mean, here is, do you think this? This is maybe this is me, and I will talk to me. Yeah, but this is this is a strange divinity. This is a strange deity who who can speak and anything happen, who who hears the needs of people in his ears, who hears the jeering assaults of his opponents. And he stays on the road. He takes their pain, their hurt, their anguish, their anger. And he takes it upon his shoulders to Calvary. Because he loves them. He takes their pain and he dies for it. He takes their pain and he dies with it. He died for the city. He died for the people in it. He died for your city. He died for the people in it. Isaiah said that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our Iniquities. He was striped with our punishment. He, he is a king, but he doesn't look like a king. Kings don't take the punishments for their people. Kings assert might and win for their people, but kings don't get scarred on behalf of their people. He is a king, but he doesn't quite look like one. I'm about done. Jesus reacts. The people react. Jesus reacts. He weeps. And uh, it's not the only thing he does in this text. And I, I wanted to, to sort of give a second reaction because Jesus, he weeps on his way to the cross. But the Bible says when he arrives in Jerusalem, he gets to the temple and he does something else. Luke says, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
And, and, and in a real way, Jesus weeps, but he also wrecks. I mean, he weeps with the people for the city, but he also wrecks in the temple. And as I was preparing, I wanted to say that Jesus did two things in this text. He weeped, he wept, and he wrecked. But as I sat with it, I don't want to say this morning that wrecking was a second behavior. I want to say that Jesus wrecking in the temple was the same weeping behavior that we saw on the mule. I want to say this morning that the same God who upturned the tables, who knocked over chairs, is is the same one and doing the same thing called weeping. I want to say to you this morning, Carlton, you come up because I really am about done. If you don't come, they don't think I'm done. The same God who weeps. Rex. But wrecking is really weeping. That's what I want to say to you. So I want to say to you, if you're looking at Holy Week and you're looking at your life and you're saying, God is changing things. Uh, God is turning over things that were really stable. I want to say to you to keep looking at Jesus because that upturning and that chaos is God. So this morning, where, uh, where can you find a prayer for this week? Where in this passage from Luke's gospel can you see Jesus? Where in this text can you find a home through the dark days of a week called holy when it seems so unholy.